We do want to get into God's Word. If you didn't bring a copy with you, we have copies. Lift your hand up and we'll get you a Bible if you don't have one. If you don't own one, uh, let us know. We would love to send you home with a Bible. Um, We're going through a series in Exodus. And a lot of what we see in Exodus are scenes of worship and sacrifice as God's people gather. And uh, it was we think about the landscape of worship in this country, I mean all over the world really, but especially in this country, there's a, there's a, a wide spectrum of the kind of worship services that you will walk into. If you're ever on vacation uh, or visiting family and you go to someone else's church, you will see that many churches uh, vary wildly on what worship looks like, the very feel of the service and the architecture of the building uh, plays a big difference. And so some people have termed the differences, the difference between low church and high church. Anyone ever hear about that difference? Low church and high church? Not many. Okay. About to drop it on you. (laughs) High church are churches that uh, seek to communicate the difference between us and God, the, the distance between us and God. God is not approachable. God is not to be petted. He's not a, your buddy. Uh, he is an awesome uh, God of power and omnipotence and holiness to be revered and respected. And so these kinds of churches normally if they had their way, and some of them do, they had the money to do it, or they inherited a building that has really high peaks and ceilings, and you think of cathedrals, um, not a lot of soft touch surfaces in there, right? It's kind of echoey and bouncy. They like that. It's good for the voices and the singing, but it's a little bit cold. There's a lot of furniture, and there's altars, and there's things made of gold, and sometimes there's smoke and there's a lot of robes and they're reading in different languages. High church. I don't understand that language. You don't understand God. This doesn't feel comfortable to me. Good. You shouldn't just waltz into God's presence. All right? We're not here to watch a movie. This is worship. And so high church, the reason why they do things the way they do is to communicate how high God is and how distant we are from Him. Right, Then low church, other end of the spectrum. God is loving. He is approachable in Christ. And He wants a companionship with you. So, uh, church looks like a Starbucks in the foyer. It's kind of like a concert feel up front. There's lights everywhere. Uh, There's mood lighting. There's stage lighting. Fog machines sometimes. A lot goes into the production to make it look like what you might see at the United Center, what you might see at a concert. It's not just that they're trying to be cool. They're trying to communicate that God comes down into our world and into our culture. And when you go around in our culture, this is the kind of world that we live in, and God steps into our world. He doesn't ask us to come out into space. He comes into our space, and our space looks like what it looks like. And so these churches, they like meeting in warehouses. And if they don't, 
they'll make the church look like a warehouse uh, with pallets everywhere and, you know, lighting and things like that. Uh, I hope you don't hear me criticizing either approach. I feel like I can worship in either place. Want to go high church? Let's go high church. It communicates that God is distant. He is distant. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I can't really be chummy with him, but at the same time, we can worship on a beach. We could worship in a living room. We could worship on a lawn because uh, we worship in spirit and truth and we don't have to travel to a Mecca to get there, right? But both of those speak to uh, bents that we have. I think when church is too low, we miss something. We miss something of what worship is like, right? What God is like, who this God is that we approach. So we're going to see a little scene here in Exodus 24. So if you turn there, Exodus 24, second book of the Bible, as we continue our series through Exodus, this scene is where God is ratifying the covenant. He's making this covenant with him and his people, and he's ratifying it. He's sealing the deal. He's providing the terms and providing what it takes to make sure that this covenant can be there. And what we're going to see right off the bat is what high church services are trying to communicate, that there is a distance and there is a gap, and you don't just walk up to God. You see that right at the top. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. I want you to worship me, but you're going to have to do it from way over there, right? Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the other shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So you have three distances. Moses is the only one that's allowed to come up to God. Then you have the, the priest, Aaron, and his sons. The priests are allowed to come up halfway somewhere, and then the people are not allowed to come up at all, okay? And so when verse, it starts out with a gap. It starts out with this gap between God and his people. This gap is there, and you can't just touch the mountain. You can't just walk up the mountain. You, you can't, this mountain is not here for you to take a hike or a stroll. You know, this is God's presence, and you cannot waltz into God's presence. There's a gap. Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, and they, they hear the sound of the Lord, like a wind coming into the garden, and what do they do? They hide. So the implication there is that prior to sin, they would hear him in the garden, and they wouldn't hide. Why wouldn't they hide? Because there's no gap. They can walk with God. They can talk with God. They can commune with God. But with sin there, they hide because they know there's a gap there. And then what does God do? Oh, no, never mind. We can still hang out. No, get out. They, they were expelled from the garden. And then God takes pains to make sure he can relate to his people. And we fast forward to Exodus 24, and here God is not pushing them aside because he doesn't love them, but communicating that there is a gap there. There is a gap because of sin. And it's a gap of conformity. We don't conform to God. How do I know that? Look at verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, right? He's laying down the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, 
all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So, the gap is the fact that God is like this and we're not like that. Right? God's laws and God's rules are not just random rules, they're a reflection of his character. Okay? And when he gives the laws, he's saying, this is what I'm like and you have to be like what I'm like, not just what you feel like doing. Right? And so as they approach God and there's this gap between us, God is communicating through Moses that the gap is because we don't live up to what God is like. And so if we're going to be in a relationship with God, that's what the covenant is. It's this relationship, this official relationship with God. If this is going to happen, it's going to require obedience. It's going to require you living like I do. Now, those of you who have been around Scripture for a while, you read that and you're like, man, 40 days don't even pass before they're worshiping a golden calf. We will do everything that you said. They break rule one, rule two, right out the bat. So, you see that, and you might have even noticed the priests. Some of these names are familiar for those of you who've been around the Bible for a while. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. These get killed for offering strange fire. They don't last long. And here they are. We will obey all that the Lord has said. Yeah, 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 the rules, the rules, all of them. No, you won't. But those are the rules. Those are the ground rules, and so there's a gap. And so what it takes to ratify this covenant is what the center of this passage is. This passage is all about blood. It gets real messy here. So look at verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, all the rules, and the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So now it's a book. It's written down. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. So we'll pause there a second. What is the deal with this killing and this blood? This means that this covenant is about life and death. Okay? So in those ancient terms, what they would have been accustomed to was uh, two parties with this animal. You kill the animal and you spread the blood around, and the blood covers you, and the blood covers me, and we're saying, if either of us breaks this, we die. If we don't break it, we live. What's at stake in the covenant? Life and death. You keep it, you live, you break it, you die. That, that's what it's about. That, that was clearly what they were understanding at that time. This is what made sense. Uh, these offerings, they understood what the terms were. And then you see that there's two different kind of offerings. There's the burnt offering, meaning they would take the entire animal and burn the whole thing. And that was for atonement. Okay? That's kind of Christianese, right? We say atonement and redemption and things, and we don't really explain them often. Atonement just means that you're covered. You're covered. Covered 
by the death of something innocent. You're guilty, but you're covered because something else took it. So that was the, the burnt offering. But then there was another offering, which was the peace offering, and that wasn't burned. That was, or I don't know how sanitary uh, to make it in a sermon. <laughs> they, they gutted it, and they collected its blood in basins, big vats of the animal's blood. And then what they took with that was representing the peace that is now afforded between man and God because that animal took death. Okay, So the death of the animal symbolizes what is due to whoever breaks this covenant. But you know when you read the Old Testament, a lot more animals are going to die than these two. Meaning... They don't keep the covenant, and so animals kept dying to remind them that something else has to take the death for us to continue this relationship. Because if something else doesn't take the death, you have to take the death, and the relationship is over. But God doesn't want the relationship to be over, so something else takes the death so that you can keep the relationship. And so the peace offering was called the peace offering because this offering affords peace between us and God. If that death is not there, we're not at peace with God. What are we at with God? Enmity. So we're at enmity with God and God is the one that initiates the relationship. He's the one that's offended, but he's the one that initiates the relationship and creates a way for us to have a relationship with him. But it costs life and it costs blood. After he takes the peace offering, he throws it on the altar as a visual reminder that worship can only be had with blood, the price of innocent life. Look at verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant, remember he wrote it down, all the rules, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. I mean, didn't we just read that? Well, yeah, it's happening again. The first time he orally gave them the law and they said, yes, we'll be obedient. Then they do this killing of the animals. One of them's burning. They smell the flesh, the carcass. Everybody smells it. They, and then there's blood everywhere and he's taking the thing, dipping it and he's sprinkling it on the altar and they're like, what is going on? And he's like, we're going to do this again. Now he reads the law and then they say again, we're going to obey. I wonder if the hand's like stuttered for a second. Like, what's up with all that blood? Uh... <laughs> Yes, we will obey. We better or we're going to die, you know? So they do it again, reads the law, and they say all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses said, uh, Moses took the blood. Remember, half of it, he threw it on the altar. What are they going to do the other half? He throws it on them. Gross. Moses took the blood threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant. He's spraying them in the face with it. That the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So it's a visual, smelly, gross reminder that your relationship with God can't be just based on your obedience because you'll fail. Therefore, it has to be based on someone innocent that covers your disobedience for you. Remember that. Remember that. That's my sound effect for spraying blood for those listening online. 
right? He's spraying them with it. It's gross. There's not enough blood to hit everyone, but he's, he's covering those people that represent their tribes. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So if you look at this passage, you've got law and obedience. Law and obedience again. Reads the law, yes, we'll obey. Reads the law, yes, we'll obey. And in the middle, this bloody sacrifice stuff, like a sandwich. We've talked about that before. All right? Bookends. And when you see that in Scripture, here's something, and then here's another thing that repeats the same thing, and they sandwich something in the middle, that's God saying, pay attention to this thing in the middle, because these two bookends are not possible without the thing in the middle. Understand? So how is obedience and law? God tells us how we're supposed to live, and we're supposed to live up to God's law. There's the relationship. How's that ever going to happen? Blood, that's how it happens, because you can't do it. And so it needs to be covered. You need to be atoned for and peace offerings need to be there to make peace with God. So, for those of us who struggle with worship that's maybe a little too flippant, worship that's a little too drive through I'm still waiting for the first drive through church. I guess you don't have to drive through you just do the online thing, video, remote, everything satellite. But you just, just here's your coffee, here's your bulletin, you know, see you later. It, it's just, we're just here to kind of check off church. For those of us that kind of struggle and we, we tend toward that, we're a little too chummy with God. Eh, God understands. I'm tired sleeping, right? Eh, God is not a vindictive God. I'll give next time, right? When we're a little too flippant, a little too chummy, we need, to, we need to understand what worship costs. That we shouldn't speak to God. We shouldn't be able to approach Him at all. And if we had a real sense of that, even a high church with the robes and reading Latin and stuff, that would seem too chummy to us if we really understood the gap that exists between us and God due to my sin, my, fail, my disobedience, my habit of saying, yes, yes, I'll do that, and then not doing it. Many of us have to feel a little bit more the weight of our guilt before God. But there's others of us who stay stuck under the weight of that guilt even when God made a way. And that's not good either. Look at what happens in the next chunk of the verses, chapter, uh, verses 9 and 10. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, they went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. What is going on there? I don't know. He's, his feet are on a sapphire pavement that's as clear as the clearest sky you could think of? What's happening there? I don't know. I think that's the best he could describe it because he doesn't even know how to exactly describe this vision of God that he had. But what I find interesting about this passage is that they were 
privilege to see God. After all these verses communicated this big gap, God says, gap is closed. You can see me. That's amazing. This unbridgeable, uncrossable gap has been closed. So now this distant God, they can see him. Now, for those of you that are a little bit more Bible nerd, you, know, you might remember John tells us no one can see God. John says that in his gospel, chapter 1, uh, 1 John 4. No one can see God. No one's ever seen God. No one can see God. Well, this says they saw God. What's up with that? Then you think of Exodus chapter 30. We're going to get there in, in a little bit. Um, uh, Exodus chapter 30. Moses, God speaks to Moses face to face as a man would speak with his friend, right? Well, what's up with that? It says Moses speaks with him face to face. Why does John say we can't see God? But then in chapter 33, Exodus 33, Moses asked to see God. Remember? And God says, well, you can't see me. Anyone who sees my face will die. So what's happening? Can they see God or can they not see God? Well, in one sense, yes. In another sense, no. They can't see God straight on. They can't see actual full God right in his face, glory. That's not what they're seeing. I think what they're seeing here is a vision of God, uh, as many of the prophets do. That's this weird deal. Uh, it's not like we can go hiking there now and find the big pavement of sapphire stone or something. It's, it's a vision. And how beautiful God is that even what his feet touch, the pavement under his feet, it's not dirt, it's not dirty, it's not stained, it's not tainted. It's clear and it's pure. So even what God's toes touch is the purest thing you can imagine. And especially in that society, even in our society really, especially in that society, feet are dirty and all that, right? So God's footstool is utter clearness and purity. He's beautiful and holy and pure, and they're looking at him in this vision. But that, even that's an exception because they should have died. Look at the last verse that we're looking at today. We're stopping at verse 11. They see him, they see the pavement, the sapphire stone, and then verse 11, and he, God, did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The implication is they should have died. You shouldn't be able to behold God like that, to even see what his feet are touching. You shouldn't even be able to see that. But they beheld it, and they ate and they drank. And while they ate and they drank, they beheld the beauty of of God. That's gap bridged. They have this relationship with God. The covenant has been ratified. They can approach and God gives them this exceptional view of himself, his beauty and his purity. Due to the blood of the peace offering. So, what is this passage emphasizing? Is it emphasizing that we're far from God? Is it emphasizing that God is very approachable and we can be, you know, kind of pals with Him? No. If anything's going to go, it might as well be Scripture. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. Look, remember when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and He took that cup and it was filled with juice and he said, this is my blood. And he said, this cup is poured out for you, and it's the new covenant in my blood. Remember that? I said that. That's in Luke 22. 
Jesus is saying, oxen blood can't do it. Ram blood can't do it. My blood has to do it. One sacrifice for all. So the new covenant is new because it's ratified in the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man that gave his life so that we can have a relationship, a covenant with God that doesn't break. Okay. Now, if you look at this passage, it speaks to both kinds of people. The person that is too flippant toward God, too, you know, coming to church, half paying attention, you know, thinking more about their fantasy players and what we're going to eat afterward. That'd be my temptation. Would be, is sometimes, whatever. Confession time, no. Distractions, right? Too fast and loose with what worship is. And they need to be brought over here. What's the solution? Is the solution better architecture? Is the solution robes? Is the solution reading out of ancient languages that no one can understand? I don't think so. I think the solution is whatever it takes to focus them on the fact that it cost Christ blood for you to sit here. Whatever it takes to focus them on that. The collection of communion, hopefully the proclamation of the gospel and the word, the centrality of the gospel and the cross in the songs that we sing. So, we want to be relevant and we want to be in the culture and we want people to not feel like they have to become some kind of strange alien in order to understand what we're communicating but we're not going to open the set with highway to hell guys we're, we're not going to be so cool so relevant so hip that we leave the gospel behind to open up the set in a secular song we're not going to take all of our money and pour it into making this entire sanctuary like a concert so people leave and be like, man, forget the United Center. I'm going to CFC. We don't care about that. Right? What do we care about? We care about someone facing the gospel squarely. That for you to worship, whether you come in blue jeans or full suit and tie, whatever the church is, high or low, that you recognize it costs Christ's blood for you to worship. It costs Christ's blood for you to approach him. So the flippant person needs a focus on the gospel. What about the other person? They're not flippant. They're on the other side. They feel weighed down by guilt. They're constantly depressed. They, they, you know, God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. Um, he doesn't focus on me. He doesn't listen to my prayers. Why? Because I'm too guilty if you only knew, if you only knew the things that I've done, there's no possible way that God could love me and that God could talk with me and that God would want. And so they have a, the difficulty of the overgap, you know, that even God can't cross this gap. But that's just as offensive to God because God's saying the gap has been crossed. The breach has been closed. You can't do it. I know you can't do it. That's what this guy maybe needs to get a little better. But this person here, what God wants to communicate to this person is you need to place your faith and trust in Christ's peace offering and what it has accomplished. It has closed that gap. It has made it possible for us 
to worship Him. And so we don't have to change church into looking like a warehouse or looking like a cathedral to get worship right. Worship is right when your focus is Christ's sacrifice for you. His cup, His blood poured out on your behalf. And it covers. How much does it cover? How many sins does it cover? What level of sins does it cover? All of it. All of it. That's freeing. That doesn't make us flippant because when you recognize what Christ has done for you, you treat that with a level of seriousness. Right? Not so much in what you wear, right? how many songs there are, or how long the sermon is. You know, it's not about that. It's about recognizing what church is about. You have been purchased. You have been bought by Christ's very blood. So what I do enjoy about this, I'm reading uh, Exodus 24. I try to think of myself, man, what would that have been like? You know, if we were really were to try to live this out, we probably couldn't do it in here because... I don't know if you can get blood out of the seats and the carpet. <laughs> uh, man, right there in front of their faces, dead animals, blood being sprayed everywhere. I'm sure some of them gave Moses a weird look when they're getting sprayed in the face. I don't even know if they expected it necessarily. But it's this bloody scene that communicates simultaneously the great cost. So you should sense guilt. Your disobedience produced this. It cost the stripes on Jesus' back. But at the same time, this is great forgiveness because you don't have to pay for anything. You don't wait to figure out, you know, uh, I'm going to come to you, God. I'm going to come to you. How many times have you heard this from a friend you're trying to invite them to church? I'll come to church. I just got to fix stuff first, you know. We can't fix it. We come to God and let him cover our sins through his atonement. Now, some of you heard this. Atonement, if you break it up into three words, it looks like at one meant. So we're separate from God, and atonement puts us at one with God. Right? And we trust that. We believe in that. So we come into worship. It's not about the song selection. It's about the song content. And what do we sing about? What do we preach about? We preach the gospel. Someone doesn't sense guilt, they need to sense their guilt. Someone feels overburdened, they feel condemned, they need to be taught there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you're free in Christ. Amen? All right. With that, I want us to close in this song with a robust understanding of the gospel. Um, so we don't want to sing, uh, what's the word, escape, like lame? <laughs> Uh, we want to sing with our hearts in it. If there's anyone here this morning doesn't understand the gospel, you're like, wait, covered by blood, I don't have to, wait, I can come to God, you're, you're confused. Come to any one of us up here, find anyone of us, one, any one of us up here, or someone wearing a green lanyard, we would love to talk with you more about what it means to trust Christ as your Savior and your peace offering.